All right, well, good morning, y'all. And uh, thank you to Pastor Tim for leading us so faithfully last Sunday and setting me up for success uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, it'll been up to Mark chapter 7. We're going to hang out in the first part of that chapter here this morning. And one of the questions that's going to be on the table for us is, what does it mean and how do we define what a follower of Almighty God is? This question Jesus is going to answer for us, and he's going to use some language that's challenging for some of us. Jesus is going to challenge our religious approaches to following God. He's going to let us know that religion can't save you. That religion is only good enough to condemn you, but it cannot rescue you. Here is where we get started in Mark chapter 7. When the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Then Mark does us a favor. We have to keep in mind who Mark is writing to. Mark is writing to a primarily Gentile audience. And so periodically throughout his gospel, he provides explanations for things that Gentiles may not have fully grasped or understood. So the next two verses are Mark doing just that. So in parentheses, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Mark wants us to know, hey, Gentiles, the Jews do things a little bit differently. And it's not an overstatement that Mark is making. It was Jewish tradition that as the Jews went to the marketplace where they would be interacting with Gentiles and mixing among them, that before they went back to their homes and before they ate, they would literally immerse themselves in a bath prior to eating so as to make sure they didn't get any Gentile cooties throughout all their Jewish possessions. And they followed very strict religious purification rules. Mark thought that was important for us Gentiles to know. And it's going to be really important once Jesus starts speaking into this. Let's get back to the story. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? It's an interesting question. Here's Jesus' response. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Well, there is an obvious question here. What is going on? Why is it that 
the Pharisees are so cranky with Jesus over this issue, and why did Jesus then flip it back on them and said, you guys are just a big pile of hypocrites? What is going on? We know that the Pharisees, they've been after Jesus for a while. They've been trying to trap him, and they're willing to go to great lengths in order to trap him. Like, literally great lengths. Here's a map of the area. Now, in the bottom arrow, that is Jerusalem. The top arrow is Gennesaret, there in the region of Capernaum. We're told at the beginning of chapter 7, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, well, where was he? Well, chapter 6 ended last week. He was still in the area of Capernaum. It was in Gennesaret. That is a 90-mile journey to get from Jerusalem to Gennesaret. The Pharisees are after Jesus, and they're willing to go to great lengths to do it. But also, this is not the first time that Jesus has been publicly questioned based on what it is that he does or does not do. We saw in Mark chapter 2, the question was this, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Later on in chapter 2, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Still later on in Mark chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a field, and as they're walking through, they're plucking off heads of grain and eating them. The Pharisees see it. They're clearly walking close enough to see what's going on. That's its own interesting uh, irony in all of this. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then in Mark chapter 3, there's a man who was in need of healing, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they didn't actually ask him a question out loud, but they were definitely questioning within their own hearts. And so this is yet another question as the, these Pharisees are wondering, why is he not washing his hands? Why are the disciples not washing his hands? So the question then is this, was Jesus doing anything wrong? That depends. The Pharisees are coming after Jesus to ask a question to figure out why his disciples are not washing their hands the way that they would have expected they would be washing their hands. Where does that come from? Look again at verse 5. It's highlighted in bold for you. According to the tradition of the elders... That is going to be a really important piece of information as we go forward. The Pharisees are asking the question, why is Jesus disobeying the law? That's not what they asked. Why is he not doing according to the elders, according to the tradition of the elders? That is what the issue is at hand. So let's get into that just a little bit. There is an oral tradition that gets passed down or was passed down from generation to generation. It's called the halakha. And from generation to generation, these oral traditions then get passed. You started with the law as given by Moses, and then over time, there were other ideas, other regulations that went along with that law. Who came up with those? Man. And those traditions were then passed along and passed along. So we get to Jesus' day, and this is where we're at. Here's why that's interesting. There is no requirement 
anywhere in the law for any human being outside of the priest and his priestly work in the temple. Aside from that one individual, there is no law or regulation, rule, suggestion, guideline, warning, anything for regular, normal human beings to wash their hands before they eat. Now, is it a good idea? Sure. But it was not a requirement. They had added to it. Over time, the halakha was then compiled into a actual volume itself, and the complete volume is called the Mishnah, which was finally completed around the 3rd century. So that actually, in book form, they had the Mishnah, which gave these other oral traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation. And within the Mishnah, 25% of it is dedicated to ideas of cleanliness, purity, ritual washings, and so on. So as the Pharisees are approaching Jesus, and to ask him the question, why are you not washing your hands? Why are your disciples not washing your hands? They're not doing it from a place of relying on the authority of God's law, but instead on the authority of man. Now, there is a phrase what this is. This is legalism. And legalism is a form, it is the purest form of religious idolatry. And what that means is that God is pleased with me as long as I do the good things. And as long as I avoid doing the not good things. If you've been a follower of Jesus, hopefully you recognize the error in that statement. Religion can't save you. Your external actions are not what makes you righteous. The only thing that makes anyone righteous is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not what I do, it's what Jesus has done. Now, before you think I'm into like cheap grace and easy believism, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the essential way that people are saved. It's not through their actions. It's not through what they do. If we could be saved based on what we do, then Jesus died an unnecessary, brutal death. It is religious idolatry to say that I am saved, I am made righteous, I am justified based on what I do or what I do not do. Now, I'm not asking you to trust my authority on this, even though I'm right. I'm asking you to trust Jesus' authority because this is what he had to say about all of this. Mark 6 and 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Why is Jesus calling them hypocrites? Two big reasons that stand out. Number one, their actions are external. It's all the outside stuff. This is what I do. This is what I don't do. Their actions are external and they're not from the heart. They are the ancient version of the southern expression, 
I don't smoke, drink, or chew, and I don't go with girls that do. It is all external. And Jesus calls them out on it. Secondly, they paid more attention to human rules, human regulations, human laws than to God's law. Again, look at the question they asked Jesus. Why do you not do this according to the tradition of the elders? Now again, is the tradition of the elders maybe a good idea? Sure. I think we fully support the idea of washing your hands before you eat. If you're not currently practicing that, can I encourage you to do so? It's just good hygiene. But to elevate it to, this is what makes you and keeps you right in front of God. It's a huge error. Now you might say, well, that's not really our issue. No, it's not. Our issues go much deeper, but we're going to get into that. But we need to see more of what Jesus has to say, because he keeps on going. Because this is a critical issue for Jesus. And what's really interesting is that mostly through Mark's gospel, what we've gotten from Mark's description of Jesus' ministry has been a sequence of different events and encounters. We don't necessarily have a whole lot of teaching from Jesus in Mark's gospel. Matthew covers a lot of Jesus' teaching. But Mark is giving us a little bit of a break here from the action. He wants us to capture Jesus' words. So Mark clearly has an agenda that he's trying to get through to us. Saying, hey, Gentiles, pay attention. Because this matters to you, too. Mark 7, starting in verse 9. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making, him, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many... Such things you do. Jesus was not content just to say, you're hypocrites. But he goes even deeper to pierce the hearts of the Pharisees. And you should notice the contrast that happens of how Jesus addresses the issue with the Pharisees. Jesus says, for Moses said. And then he uses their own words against them. But you say. Notice the contrast. Jesus is relying on the authority of God's word as given and handed down by Moses, directly from God's mouth to Moses's ears and from Moses as a spokesperson to God's people. This is God's law. Moses is not the authority God is. Moses is the mediator of the authority that God has, has established. And that's what Jesus is appealing to. God said this, but you say, and we get into this interesting issue of Corbin. It's a Hebrew and Aramaic word, which means dedicated to God. And it was a type of deferred giving, if you want to call it that, we put it in 2022 terms, where anybody's possessions, 
At the moment of their death, all those possessions would have been sold off or given directly to the work of God. And so an individual could say, hey, I'm, I've dedicated this to God, so I can't share it with anybody else. Now, there was a strange loophole in this rule of Corbin. Keeping in mind, Corbin does not exist in Scripture other than as a descriptive thing. This is not prescribed anywhere in Scripture. This is another one of the traditions handed down by the elders. One of the loopholes with Corbin, and this is frightening, is that a person could keep their wealth and use it for themselves. They just couldn't spend it on somebody else. So as someone could say, this is Corbin. This is dedicated to God and yet still use it for their own purposes. And Jesus is calling them out on their hypocrisy. Hey, the responsibility for children is to honor your father and your mother. And in the culture, as their parents grew older, it was the responsibility of the children to provide care and attention for them, to support them. Because, well, guess what? They were going to be able to keep jobs for themselves. They were growing older, just not able to do as much. And so some found this loophole and said, well, you know what, mom, dad, I'm sorry. I can't support you right now because... This is Corbin. This is dedicated to God, while at the same time using it for themselves. And Jesus calls them out on it. It is hypocrisy in its highest form. Now, all this is still under the big issue of they've defiled themselves. Hey, Jesus, you and your disciples, you've defiled yourselves because you haven't washed your hands properly. Now, here's the ridiculous irony of all of this. The requirements for washing yourself are not what, certainly not what we've experienced over the last two years. We have heard everywhere, emblazoned in bathrooms, on buses, on billboards, wash your hands for how long? Okay, I've got like 17 different responses. I thought that was going to be a little bit more unified. Anywhere from 20 to 30 seconds is generally what's recommended. For the Jews who are practicing this ritual washing, they could take the smallest amount of water and just performatively sprinkle it over their hands, and that was considered washing. If you've gone out and you've been working in your fields, you've been doing what farmers do in a primarily agrarian society in the first century, your hands are likely going to be pretty gnarly and funky by the end of the day, correct? Would a small sprinkling, a misting of water be sufficient for your hands to be clean? No. Now, some of us have children who think that's true, but we know that it's not. And this is what they were doing. This is all that they were doing. I'll be one thing if they were practicing like really excellent hygiene. These things came out sparkling and they got all the dirt out from underneath their nails instead of chewing it out themselves. Yeah, those of you that laughed know you do it, so that's okay. But no judgment, you know. Even in their own practices, they're showing themselves to be hypocrites. And Jesus is calling it out. And it's a warning for us. Your religious habits don't do anything for you. Your religious habits ultimately condemn you. If you're trusting in your religious habits, 
to save you, to grant you righteousness, to make you justified, you are going to be sorely disappointed. He keeps going. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Let's press a pause there, because those of you who are really astute and who have done a good job of paying attention for the entirety of the message, you notice an omission. Because on the previous slide, it was verses 14 and 15, this slide says verse 17. Where's verse 16? It really depends on which translation of the Bible you have. Your translation may or may not have verse 16. And if it doesn't have verse 16, it just immediately skips and goes right to 17. Some of your Bibles do have verse 16. Now, for those of you who have Bibles where you don't have verse 16, don't worry, you're not missing much. Verse 16 merely says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the reason why it's omitted from some of our translations is because that verse it doesn't show up in all of the old manuscripts in the same way, so it's kind of a question. So certain translators decide, you know what, there's enough of a question about this. It doesn't change any major point of doctrine. Let's just leave it out. So just to let you know, I didn't rob you of a verse. The English translators did. So take it up with them. I'll give you their email addresses. But we're left with the disciples saying, okay, what in the world are you talking about? What do you mean that nothing going into a person can defile him? So he answers the question. He said to them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared, all foods clean. Hooray! Bacon! Back on the menu. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord, I receive it. Then he goes forward. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus just flipped everything upside down, and he let the, the Pharisees know, religion cannot save you. Your ceremonial laws, your purification rituals that you have added and embellished and made oppressive on people cannot save you. They don't make you right in front of a holy God. They don't justify you in front of a holy God. Why? Because your issue is so much deeper than the condition of your hands. Your issue is your heart. Jesus makes the condition of the human heart the chief concern. He says again in verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, 
That's where our problem lies. And I love the fact that Mark has taken a break from these episodes and encounters to give us this teaching because it really drills down deep into what the issue is and what Jesus came for. It is to rescue sinners. And we're sinners not with our hands. We are sinners with our hearts. It just happens to extend itself into our hands, our feet, our mouths, our thoughts, our eyes, our ears. And Jesus is making it really clear. What religious act, what tradition, what other man-made regulation that's out there, what of those things can change a heart? None of them. And yet, we find ourselves prone to thinking, if I do this, if I do that, God will be pleased with me. What pleases God, and where God found good pleasure, was in crushing his son on our behalf. Now, I am not encouraging you, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying to think it doesn't matter what you do. No, I think there are ways of walking in accordance with the gospel. There are holy patterns of living that need to be pursued. But they're pursued not in order to make me right, not in order to make me justified, not in order to save me, but as a result of the fact that I am saved, I am justified, I am made right in front of a holy God, based on that, based on that new definition of who I am, I'm going to live in a way that is in accordance with what God believes of me, what God has declared me to be, the reason why God has adopted me as his own. Which of these acts, traditions, regulations, can change a heart. I mean, let's just really look at it. If the issue is the washing of hands, and if we're just going to use like their most meager way of doing it, just a small dribbling of water on their hands, does that really have any impact on the heart? No. It doesn't do anything. It has zero impact on the heart. Now, I'll confess, it's difficult for me to admit that because I am one of those people, I have to fight against this, that I am convinced that cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm a little off the charts OCD, a bit of a clean freak. And there certainly are those times where I think, oh, well, see, everything's clean and organized, all is right in the world. But is that true? No. Matter of fact, sometimes, okay, true confession here. There are things brewing in my mind and my heart at any given moment that just freak me out and cause me um, a considerable amount of anxiety, panic, concern, worry, and all those kinds of things, which is why I then gravitate to cleaning things because it's the one thing I actually have control over. And it's the one thing that I know I'm going to do this, and then it's going to be done, it's going to be over. I can look back and say, ha, that thing is done. And I'll use that to distract myself. That's why I'm really good at folding laundry. Because sometimes I just need to escape from that. But is that actually changing anything? 
No, I mean, it's keeping my laundry off the floor. But other than that, it has zero impact on my eternal state. And yet our tendency is to drift towards practices. This will make things better. This will make me right. Meanwhile, the great God of the universe has said, I've already declared you right and justified. I've already saved you. Now, are there practices that we can do that can enhance our relationship with God? Yes, absolutely. That's why I routinely plead with you to spend time daily in God's word. Not because God's you know, reading God's word alone is going to somehow make you better, but it gets you closer to the heart of God. You can actually hear what he has to say, what it is that he thinks about you. And then you can also use God's word to quickly slice away the garbage that's offered up as somehow being a good religious practice. Let's get into this. You ready to fight? Let's say yes. There are some who would say and make an issue out of, depending on the translation of the Bible that you read, you may or may not be a good Christian. There are churches out there that have a very strong stance on one particular translation of the Bible, and if you do not use that translation, you are viewed as an outsider, and perhaps your salvation is in question. We don't practice that here. Now, I do have a translation of the Bible that I like to use. Um, people ask me, what's the best translation of the Bible to, to read? I'm like, the one you're actually going to read. I preach from the ESV. That's what you're seeing on the text, on the screen behind me. A lot of you have New King James versions because Pastor Ron thought that was the best thing out there. I think he's wrong, but it's okay. You can still read it. Use NIV, KJV, NASB. I mean, for really honest, the NASB is my absolute favorite tradition. It's just, um, it's a very wooden translation. It just doesn't, it's not smooth. Anyways, I don't care which translation of the Bible you read. I just care that you actually read it. I'm not a huge fan of the message paraphrase translation of the Bible. But hey, if that's what it takes to get you into God's word, then use the message. I really don't care, but people will fight about that. That was the easy one. Let's go more. There are people who would say that you could not be a Christian if you are a part of this particular political party. I hope you can flatly reject that on its face. Tim Keller put it this way. People ask, where do followers of Christ fit within the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? And his answer was, we don't. We don't fit. Are there Republican practices that are good and wise and that we can support? Absolutely. Are there Republican practices that we can and should flatly reject? Absolutely. Are there Democratic principles that we can and should flatly reject? Sure. Are there Democratic principles that we could possibly accept? Absolutely. We don't fit. We're weirdos. And the moment you start making your Christian identity part of your political identity, you have messed up royally. And you have made something out of nothing. And it's creating an issue. Look at our churches today. Tell me what's going on. People have begun to equate their Christianity with a political party. 
you cannot, you cannot say that one equals the other. You can be as a faithful Christian, because I recognize I'm speaking to a primarily conservative audience in here, so I'll just say it. Because some of you don't believe it. I'll just I'll try to give like a little bit of authority to it. You can be a faithful, devoted follower of Jesus and a member of the Democratic Party. It's also true that you can be a member of the Republican Party and be as hard-hearted and callous and in desperate need of salvation. The flip is also true. You can be a devoted follower of Jesus and a member of the Republican Party. And you can also be someone who is a member of the Democratic Party and in desperate need of a heart change, but not because you're a part of one party or the next. You need a heart change because from within, out of the heart of man. There are people who would suggest to you that if you don't share the gospel this many times and in this way every single time, you're somehow an unfaithful follower of Jesus. That's just not true. It's not in there at all. Maybe good ideas, maybe good principles, but don't use that as an equation as to whether or not somebody is or is not a faithful follower of Jesus. We end up creating all of these extra regulations and these extra rules, and we make it way more complicated than necessary to follow what God has said. So I need you as this church to have better ears, to listen to what you're actually hearing, what the defining characteristics of a Christian are. Here's the basic information, and if this is true, then we're good. If an individual has trusted Jesus Christ for their salvation, recognizing that they are racked with sin at the deepest part of their being, and if they have trusted in Christ for their salvation, that is the mark of a Christian. Not which Bible translation you use, not what political party they're a part of, not which corporations they do or don't support. None of that matters. None of that defines what a biblically identified and defined Christian is. Quit messing it up. Quit being like the Pharisees here. Why are you not doing this according to the tradition of the elders? Now, we don't use that phrasing, tradition of the elders, but we have our own man-made traditions that we have carried down with us. It's been an oral tradition. Nobody put it in a book for us. And we've been following it for a long time. And what do we have to show for it? The really technical description of that is diddly-poo. That's what we have to show for all of our man-made traditions. I don't care what political party you're a part of. I truly don't. You can tell me, and this is the expression you're going to get from me. I don't care. What I want to know is, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you devoting yourself to following Jesus? I don't care what translation of the Bible you use. I want to know, are you following Jesus? Are you actually reading the Bible that you're so agitated to tell me about? Do you read it? Please be very, very careful of what you use to define what a follower of Jesus looks like. 
we ask this question of what can change a heart, but it works towards this too. What religious act, what tradition, what man-made regulation defines a follower of Jesus? The answer is none. A follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. Now, again, as followers of Jesus, there are certain practices that we do, not in order to somehow curry God's favor towards us, but instead in response to the favor he has already shown to us. Because God has rescued me, because God has saved me from his sin, because God has showered me with his grace, because God still takes an active interest in having a relationship with me, that's why I read my Bible. That's why I pray. That's why I gather with his people. It's an old and overused statement, but it makes a point, so I'm going to use it. Showing up to church on a Sunday doesn't make you any more of a Christian than you standing in your garage makes you a car. You could show up here every Sunday. You could show up here the rest of the week. Some of the doors would be locked, but eventually some of you would find your way in. That doesn't do anything. That does not change you. That does not get to the heart issue. And that's what Jesus' concern is And getting to all this. is What is in your heart? Are you willing to deal honestly with it? Quit trapping it all in this religious practice and language. It means nothing. It's a sad reality that there is such a thing as a vocabulary known as Christianese. Most of us are pretty fluent in it. And for most of us, what Jesus said to the Pharisees would apply. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's sad but understandable that there is such an idea, concept out there as churchianity. Not Christianity, churchianity, where we are well-churched, but our hearts are far from Christ. Let us not be so good at being church members that we forget Christ in the process and forget our need for a transformed heart. That's the issue that's at work here. Religion can't save you. And Jesus needed the Pharisees as well as all those who are watching this interaction to hear and to hear clearly. What we need is a new heart. Now if you go way back to the prophet Ezekiel, a new heart is promised. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Who's doing the work there? God's doing the work. At any point, anywhere in Scripture, has God said, if you will do this and this and this and this, I will give you a heart of flesh. You can search and search. You're never going to find it. It's not in there. God said, I will do this. 
I will be the one to give you a new heart. It tells us two things. It just confirms what Jesus has already said. Number one, God gives the new heart. And number two, we desperately need one. My prayer for us is that we would be people that are marked by continuously transformed and transforming hearts. I don't know if you've paid attention to your heart recently, but it drifts on you. You may be in a day or a season where things are going well, and then all of a sudden you just find yourself just kind of drifting. That's why I pray for a transforming heart. But here's the good news from Scripture. God's mercies are made new each morning. If you've been drifting, here's what I would encourage you to do. Number one, name it. Call it what it is. God, my passion towards you has chilled. And God, I have moved far from you. And I'm ready to start again. God will not rebuke you. God will not shun you. God will not say, how dare you? Instead, he responds with mercy. His mercy is made new each morning. You know what's awesome? Is we're not even halfway through the day yet. And I already know, based on the goodness and the truth of God's word, that there is mercy that's stored up for me for tomorrow morning, even before I ask for it. It's ready. It's brand new. If you've been drifting for a while, if you've made other issues more important than the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, guess what? That mercy is for you to repent and receive his mercy. If you've made external issues more important than the internal condition of your heart, repent and know that God's mercy is waiting for you. He accepts you. He forgives you. He welcomes you back. You will not be shamed. You will not be judged. Come back. Repent. And receive his mercy as he works on your heart day by day, week by week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. Father, I pray that we're very careful first with the condition of our hearts and that we would freely acknowledge that our hearts are wicked and deceitful and prone to drifting that we are as the great hymn says prone to wander prone to leave the one I love and when we get there we're so tempted to surround ourselves with some kind of religious activity, some kind of external action, when really all that you require of us is a broken and a contrite heart. We thank you that you are in the heart repair business, and that there is no limit Father, I pray that we're honest about the condition of our hearts. And I pray that we would live heart to heart 
with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, there are so many potential things that could divide us if we allowed them to. But the strength of those things doesn't come anywhere close to the strength of the one thing that unites us. And that is the precious blood of Christ. Father, may we be the kinds of people that make that the measurement of what a faithful, devoted follower of Jesus looks like. Again, we thank you that you are in the business of repairing hearts. And we thank you that you have mercy stored up, ready to lavish upon us. So give us boldness and courage to rush to you, to ask for help, to confess our need, and to experience your mercy all over again. We ask these things in the name of the one who gave us his life to make that mercy possible, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.